All right, welcome back to the Forward Podcast. I'm Lance, your host, each and every week. Very interesting discussion this week. I, I mentioned a couple weeks ago on the show that I spent a day uh, at the San Quentin Prison, just outside of San Francisco, um, speaking to a group there called The Last Mile, which is uh, basically a resource for prisoners uh, to educate themselves, learn um, how to code, and so uh, when they eventually get out of prison, uh, they have a skill and potentially have a job, potentially have an income. Uh, I, was, I have to tell you, I was super inspired by, uh, by my day at San Quentin and especially uh, the group The Last Mile. Hats off to Chris Redlitz, who founded it. Um, and like I'll say in this podcast, looking forward to going back. Before I get to Chris and Kenyatta and Chris Schumacher, um, we just wrapped up the uh, again. We swore that we would never, ever, ever go back there, but we just <laughs> we did. We went back for the uh, the twenty four hours in the old Pueblo. Same team: myself, Dylan Casey, Georgine Cappy, and Christian Vandeveld. Unfortunately, Christian got sick had to had to tap out. So we had our our uh, all star fill in Julia Polarino, also from Team We Do. Um, so thanks to Todd Sadow, his entire crew, especially all the volunteers who do, uh, do such an amazing job trying to keep 4,000 people in 24 hour town completely sane and safe. Um, you know, the good news is, is none of us left swearing that we would never go back. So who knows? 2019. See you all there. All right. Um, here comes, uh, Chris Redlitz, first and foremost, the, the, the gentleman who started the last mile. Uh, as well as Chris and Kenyatta, two former prisoners um, at San Quentin and also alum of The Last Mile who are now living in San Francisco, working in the city, uh, and living the lives as productive citizens. I was super inspired, and uh, I hope you guys are too. Like I say each and every week, questions, comments, concerns, whatever you got, send me an email, theforward at wedu.team, W-E-D-U.team. Enjoy the crew from the last mile. We'll talk to you next week. By the way, next week, an incredible show. Stay tuned. Fellas, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I just, you guys know this, but I just left your old home. Um, which was surreal in a whole lot of ways, but it got really surreal when we left there to like go have lunch in Marin at the Marin, whatever, whatever. So you have all these swanky, fancy, wealthy, pretty people. And I'm like, wait, uh, it's too much. I can't, I can't take it. But um, thanks for being here. And, and the program that, that uh, you know, that we, well, actually this, this all came to me from Lindsay Beck last summer where she was like, I think the, the original email was like, I got to get you to come to San Quentin. I'm like, nah, I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> but uh, as I learned more and more about the last mile, and I was like, all right, let's do it. And uh, But just seeing what's coming, look at you guys. Like, Kenyatta, you're here. You, walk, you walked from work. Yep. But that's not the significant, that is a significant thing for you. But go back. How long were you in, in I mean, in San Quentin, in prison, in federal prison? I was in state prison, San Quentin, California prison system for about 19 years. Uh, I entered the prison system in 1991, first of all. Got convicted of an armed robbery. Uh, pled guilty to two counts of robbery. Went to prison for a five-year sentence. 
Um, after about three, I served about three and a half years. It was an inmate firefighter. Got out in 1994. The two counts of robbery that I pled guilty to, guilt, pled guilty to, they automatically turned into two strikes when the three strikes law was passed. So I was walking around a three strike candidate and didn't even know it. Um, more significantly, though, during my term in prison, I didn't do any work on myself, and so I basically left prison in 1994 with the same mindset that I entered prison with in 1991. Right. Which was Didn't, not a good mindset. Not a good mindset at all. Within five months, um, I was caught to be, found to be in possession of a firearm and um, convicted of being an ex-felon in possession of a firearm, convicted, <clears throat> excuse me, and sentenced to 25 life for possession of a firearm under California's three strikes law. But can it, sorry, the armed robbery, was anybody hurt? Was anybody, or were you just stealing? There was no physical harm that was done, mm -hmm. but emotional harm, definitely. Yeah. Um, when you pull a firearm on somebody, you point a firearm at somebody. I mean, that causes definitely emotional, yeah. you know. And you're, you're you're a kid, right? You did this in 19, probably 1990, right? 1991. I was 22 years old. 22. Yeah. Alone? I was with a friend of mine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And we actually got away with the robbery. He went back a week later, tried to rob it again, got caught, and then told on me for the first robbery. Well, of course they did. Of course, <laughs> yeah. of course. So, we talked about this with the guys today. That was one of the biggest laughs they had. I was like, boys, you know, let me just tell you, when the, when the dude shows up with the badge and the gun, everybody's talking. Yeah. Almost all. I mean, almost everybody. And they, they just laughed. But, yeah, of course he did. Yeah, that's the way it went down. And, uh, you know, he told on me. And so, you know, that's, pretty, that's part of a big reason why I never – you know, got around to taking responsibility for the crime that I committed in 1991 is because I was so, you know, intent on blaming him and, you know, getting revenge on him, you know, and that kind of distracted me from, you know, taking responsibility for, you know, I, I mean, I, I that, that, that doesn't, I mean, I've only recently, um, for me, begun to talk about that because, you know, I wasn't part of an armed robbery or a murder or, drugs or anything else but we well it wasn't part of drugs but um you know for my downfall wouldn't have been possible if it wasn't for my teammates mm -hmm. telling on me right and so for years i held this this real real anger yeah. like fuck these motherfuckers yeah are you serious like but as i've lived with it and as i've gotten close to them again i realized that that it's not about wasn't about me and it really wasn't about them it's about their families. Like in that position, they're just gonna they're gonna do what they have to do to protect their family. Yep. And and you know, once I came to that understand deep, profound, real understanding, I mean, that's where true forgiveness comes from. You can look at them like, dude, I mean, I would look them in the eyes and be like, I understand, like I get it. Right. And so uh, very, very, very few instances to somebody truly get your back in that situation. It was just that doesn't happen. Yeah, yeah, it's not realistic. And I mean, you know, I, I went through all these different changes to, to get to the point where I am today, you know, accepting full responsibility and holding myself accountable for what I had done. You know, I'm past the blame. I'm past all those games, and I'm moving forward with my life today. And so it feels good. You know, I wouldn't be who I am today had I not gone through all that. It's so funny. I mean, this is exactly what the conversation I just had with the current class at San Quentin. So I guess I probably should have told the listeners what it is when we talk about class and the guys we're talking about and later in the show we'll have chris redlitz on who started this amazing program called the last mile so you know you have all these dudes in 
prisons, serious prisons for serious crimes that at some point are seriously going to get out, right? For whatever, just because we can't hold all these people. And um, but the last mile came along and, and and taught you guys, guys like you, to code from scratch. Like it's crazy. Like I, I have a tough time with my iPhone sometimes. Like you're just like <laughs> learning to code from scratch, and you guys are are essentially graduating right out from co- like a college right and getting out into the real world you're now working at i work at a company called rocket space but uh, i gotta take a step back because i didn't graduate from the coding program when we first started so the last mile preceded it yeah yeah it was about the entrepreneurship and then in 2014 we pivoted towards coding right and i was already out by then um, i was fortunate enough to meet a guy named duncan logan who's the founder and ceo of rocket space he was one of the initial adopters from the business community that came in that Chris and Beverly actually brought in to, to uh, you know, help guide us and mentor us sure. about our business aspirations. And so, um, you know, at our demo day, uh, after our demo day, I just hit him up. I'm like, dude, if I got out of here, you know, tomorrow, would you give me a job? And he said, yes. The following year, I was um, found eligible for resentencing once they changed the three strikes law. And um, I got out. I got resentenced. I got out. And uh, I hit up Duncan. I'm like, hey, man, does that job still exist? Yeah. And he said, yeah. And so I started working at Rocket Space about two weeks after that. And I've been there ever since, been able to start off as an intern and I've promoted to a management position. And now I'm in sales and, um, and operations with the company. And it's just been a fantastic opportunity. I'm really grateful to Duncan and everybody at Rocket Space for yeah. the opportunity. And Chris Schumacher, who's we're going to get to your story later, um, you did come out of the program. I did. I mean, we're here with you on, you know, January 2018. You got out. May of 2017. That's crazy. It's been a wild ride. You know, I served uh, 17 years in prison for the crime of murder. Mm. Uh, for me, that was the biggest wake-up call in my life that, that I could ever imagine because I never thought that I would be the type of person that takes another man's life. Um, and a lot of it had to do around drugs and alcohol. For me, my time in prison was getting clean and sober. And it was about taking advantage of every learning and growing opportunity that I could to try to take accountability for this crime, to try to develop my skills. And for me, being at San Quentin for the last 10 years was an amazing experience because I was able to go back to school. I was able to earn a college degree and I was able to follow in the footsteps of other role models in the San Quentin community like Kenyatta Leal uh, and got involved with the last mile. You know, and it, what it started as an entrepreneurship program uh, where we were coming up with ideas about things we were passionate about, things that involved technology, and also things that had a social cause. Uh, so for me, uh, my idea was called Fitness Monkey, and it was an online life coaching service that empowered addiction recovery through physical fitness. Uh, and it was a great idea and got a lot of good feedback, but you can't actually uh, operate a business while you're inside prison. I saw, I did see the load, the Fitness Monkey logo in, right when we walked in, not in the big room, but yeah. in one of in the smaller, the first room we stopped in, there's a few, you haven't been back, by the way. No, I have not been back. Well, okay, so I'm, I was there today, I'm just going to tell you. So, if you ever go back, you'll see it, I don't go back for the right reasons, but the, the, and I saw it on the wall, I didn't know what Fitness Monkey is, I didn't know that was something you were involved with. I was like, oh, that, I just figured they do work for fitness. There's other, other companies up there, but they got you represented on the walls. Yeah, so that that's my uh, idea. Uh, and then in 2014, when they started the Code 7370 program, yep. I was able to start learning front-end web development, uh, and we developed a working app for uh, Fitness Monkey. Yeah. 
it's a personal health and recovery tracker. It logs people's clean time, lets them log workouts, and then provides them data and metrics to help them avoid relapse. And when you say drugs and alcohol, are we talking, what are we talking about? I'm talking about... And we're uh, talking about you, right? Yeah, yeah me. Back, back you know, 20 years ago. I mean, everything was uh, drinking and drugging and partying. I was living in Hollywood. I thought I wanted to be a rock star. Uh, but I was partying like a rock star way before my musical talents ever got me there. Right. Uh, and so in 2000, I was dealing drugs. Uh, two friends of mine stole a six-pound suitcase of weed from me. And through those feelings of betrayal and me trying to protect this image, uh, I took a man's life. And that's something I can never take back. And that's, I mean, I think maybe something that we share in common is like when you make a decision uh, that you wish you could take back mm-hmm. and you just can't sometimes right. no. and so how do we move forward right no that's what this is this is, whole show is about that like that's my that's what i spoke about this morning to the current class that's what we talk about almost all the time on this podcast is it's not called the forward for nothing right it's it's, it's how do you uh establish a low point right sometimes the world is the, you know society and the forces establish that for you. But once that's established, I think that's also a peaceful place. Like, okay, here, I mean, we saw a lot of guys today. I mean, it's, you talk about a stab. I mean, walking, death row, I mean, that, I'm like, how dudes pacing in their yard? Like, it was, you can't think, I mean, you can't even process that, but trying to establish that low point and then building back, right? Moving forward. And, and um, what, Chris, for you, what, um, the he was a friend of yours, the guy you the guy who you killed. Yeah, he was a just an acquaintance. He was somebody I knew not for very long. Right, um, but I would call him a friend. He was somebody that I trusted. Yeah, uh, and so for him, and you shot him. Uh, no, uh, mm-hmm. it's amazing. Like a lot of these today were the guys that were in there for murders. Like, how did you do it? And, and more often than not, they they stabbed him, which. In my mind, when you think you kill somebody, you just shoot them, right? But the stabbings. Um, so, and I don't want to get too deep into this, and you can cut me off whenever, but yeah. as part of this process, for you to, to get out, to, to be where you are today, do you have to reconcile all that with his family, his mom, his dad, his brothers, his sisters, his loved ones, his community? Yeah, I mean, that's huge. Understanding victim impact is huge. I mean, it's a part of taking responsibility. It's a part of being accountable. Uh, and it's also a part, I think, of making amends, right? Understanding who are the people that you hurt. Like, it just wasn't one man that lost his life. It was it was a daughter that lost her father. It was an aunt that lost her nephew. Uh, and it was a whole community that was harmed uh, by this crime. Have you, uh, do you meet with them? Do you sit with them? Do, do, or is- so in my situation, you know, I was sentenced to 16 years of life. Uh, for murder. Uh, and what that means is you do 16 years, uh, and then you can start going in front of a parole board. Uh, and the parole board wants to hear, uh, you take accountability for the crime, they want to know uh, what kind of behavior you had in prison, and what kind of plans that you're going to have in place once you re-enter society before they'll ever deem you suitable for release. So it's not like you can just do your time and go home. You really have to uh, prove yourself. And I felt like I had to prove myself. Uh, and during that process, family members are invited uh, by the, the district attorney, the victim, yeah, to come to the hearing. Uh, and in my situation, uh, they didn't show up either time. 
But what I did, what I was able to do is write letters of apology mm-hmm. uh, and a, an accountability statement, uh, taking, you know, complete ownership of what happened yep. and apologizing. Yep. Yeah, I mean, that's really not, I mean, again, I didn't, <coughs> despite what some people may think, I never killed anybody, but it, it, that's been a big part of, uh, of of my process of moving forward is understanding that along the way, there were some people that got rolled. They didn't get shot or stabbed or hurt, or they did get hurt, uh, maybe in some ways, but, you know, having to sit with them, you know, and, and that's been, and, and you can't get everybody, right? In my situation, there, there, are, there are some. There are some. It's a fact that are just like no, not 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 now, not ever. But you know, I made it a, 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 as part of my own journey, and it's what it is—a journey to literally travel the world and like, sit with these people and, and talk about um, the experience, talk about your feelings, say you're sorry, embarrassed, ashamed. For me, a lot of it's more just, which I'm sure for you guys, it's, you look back on that and you're like, that's just embarrassing, right? And and. and my situation, I get reminded of it all the time, and it's like, dude, what was I thinking? I mean, I almost think because you were such uh, an icon, you know, winning all those Tour de France is amazing athlete, my hero for for a long time, and, and still are, and still can be. Excuse me. Um, but it's almost like when you're at that level, your victim impact is even greater than no, mine. That, it's, that, it's affected more people. Right. No, that's right. That's the if if I was just a cyclist who doped, this is a different story, right? And we and we talked about that in the class today. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, when you couple the cancer experience, you couple all the um, the people who were fully invested in that. That's what makes the meltdown, my meltdown, that much more colossal, right? So, Kenyatta, you got a family? I sure do. I don't have any kids. Not no, yet. Not yet. Wife? Not yet. <laughs> what, what is it not to be I have to ask this but and this is for, for both of y'all and anybody that ever got out like how does but you go out definitely you meet a girl in a bar a restaurant yep you're allowed to go to bars yep okay mm-hmm. she's like I mean it has to come I mean you can't lie about it. you don't want to tell you guys you, you, it is what it is and I heard that you were on a dating site and like you, you told the girl like I've been away for a while she's like where you're like San Quentin You've heard the whole story. That's where I heard it. I told Lindsay to stop. I was like, stop. No, stop right there. I said, I, he'll tell the story. But like, if you're in a bar mm-hmm. and everybody's having a good time, are you just like, yeah, I was in San Quentin for almost 20 years? You'd be surprised. I'm really transparent about my past and my experience. Every person that I meet, I want them to hear the story from me and not secondhand. And so, um, you know, I, I've come out straight out and tell people. And you'd be surprised how many people... Uh, not only, you know, are are just like, you know, they, they understand, but um, are and are receptive to what I'm saying. But they themselves have been impacted by incarceration in some form or fashion, whether it's a family member, a friend, even themselves that have been incarcerated. I swear, every single time I get into a lift and I'm taking, you know, a ride somewhere, I get to talking with the with the lift driver. I'd say about six out of the you know, uh, 10 Uber or Lyft drivers that I'm in the car with have been impacted by incarceration in some mm-hmm. form or fashion. So it's more common than you think. And it's, um, it's no, kind but of, a, but, but on a, not a, not an Uber driver, but like mm-hmm. a girl, oh, this girl's pretty, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of feeling this. And, and, and it, like, I would be terrified to, be, to say like, yeah, I was, 
Well, I tell you, ruin my chance. I'm not afraid to say it. I say it. If they accept me for that, then well, cool. If they don't, then that's cool too. Well, you that's know? but they need to hear it from me though. I don't want them to go on, you know, check out this guy.com, you know what I mean, and find out that way. I that's want them to hear it from me. Outside. Probably. It should be. <laughs> should get that domain, huh? <laughs> New business model. No, I, I think that's right. I think if you if you own it and you say it, if you play offense, mm-hmm. so to speak, on that. Yeah. Um, I mean there's a lot of things you could say in a bar to somebody you're interested in that could test them. That's got to be the biggest test. Yeah. Um, well, I feel like this. I feel like they deserve a right. Every woman that I meet deserves a right, deserves the right to decide whether or not they want to continue to talk to me. Yeah. And so that needs to come out like right from the very beginning. Sure. Um, I have a girlfriend now, so that's not even an issue. But, you know, in, in a situation when that comes up, I mean, that. That needs to, they need to know. Right. You know what I mean? So I put it out there. And the current girlfriend, her parents? Because then, it, you know, they know. then it, it, it just it gets they know. Everybody deeper knows. and deeper. I've been very transparent about my story. I mean, you put in Kenyatta Leal and, and, and your phone and everything pops up. So, But in a way, I mean, it, it, I, it, maybe it was the way you said it. To, to me, you got a little screwed because you didn't know that you had one and two. You thought you had one. But it, doesn't, it should never have been a two or a three, but you... you, but you <clears throat> You had two and didn't know it. Yeah, that was, I tell you, it. it is what it is. It For is a long time, I was very bitter, very angry about the whole situation. To this day, I mean, I, I recognize now that, you know, I couldn't have gotten struck out had I not put myself in that position. Mm-hmm. I made the choices. I put myself in that position. So, you know, no more blaming about yeah, it. It's interesting. Know? Walking walking the yard today and just walking from building to building, a lot of the guys would come up and and, and they would say, and a lot of people say this, but maybe a higher percentage today said, "We think you got screwed." And you you know it's you can't not hear that and, and feel some level of support. But it, I respond just like you respond. It's like, look, it, it is what it is. I'm here. We are. Yep. <laughs> because you or you or whoever thinks that I got screwed, that's not going to change anything. Like that's, we're, I was dealt this hand, a lot of it by my own, like you would admit as well, a lot of it by my own action. Um, and, and I get to deal with it, right? And that's, you can deal with it a couple different ways, but, you know, the, the only way to, you know, I've found this place like you all where, you know, it's a positive direction forward. Yeah, it's really easy to sit in that place called denial and <laughs> gather all these bits of information to support your position. That's easy. The tough part is taking responsibility. And really unpacking all, everything that you've done. Well, Chris a moment ago talked about you know the the impact that it has not just on your not just on yourself but your family and your community, everybody involved. That's much more difficult mm-hmm. to deal with that. And so um, you know to anybody who who comes at me like oh yeah the system screwed you, I'm like okay you know let's keep it moving. Yeah, they haven't got to that point. Then you got to go back to work. So I don't. I do. Okay. I do. All right. Well, uh, I got a question for you. Yep. At this point in your life, what keeps you up at night? Hmm. Good question. Will the Raiders ever get a defense? That keeps, <laughs> that keeps me up, you know. That's no, you know but, what? That's a that's that shows that if that doesn't. I mean, because for twenty years or whatever, you, there were other things that kept you up at night. If 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 it's a question of whether or not the Raiders get a defense, then life's pretty good. Yeah, it definitely is good. I have no complaints. And if I had a dollar for every Raiders logo I saw in San Quentin today, it is like there is no other team in the world. <clears throat> I mean, no wonder people think that that team and all their fans are a bunch of thugs. Like, there was every cell had a race. I mean, there was no Cowboys, no 49ers, no Packers, no all 
Raiders. You know they're moving to Vegas. Yeah, I'll be there. Raider Nation. (laughs) Really? Yes, sir. You think that whole if if they if they have that much equity with their fans that they're that that they're leaving their city and moving to Vegas and they go that is. You should come to a game at the Coliseum. You'll see a whole section of people all from L.A. that are season ticket holders. They come up here for every home game. Yeah, I mean the team could move to like you know Moscow and they'd be going. Raider Nation. All right. Till the end. Thanks for being here, brother. Thank you, sir. Pleasure meeting you. Nice to meet you. All right. So I guess we'll just, we're winging it a little bit here. We'll we'll slide these guys over. All righty. Two Chris's. Or we'll let Kenyatta go out so the the door shuts. When are you coming back, man? Um, We'll just slide over here for a second on a knee. I'll tell you, because since you just asked me, uh, because I was waiting, I don't know what I was waiting for, but but one of the guys in the class ran the marathon. So it turns, turns out there's a San Quentin marathon. And so I'm I'm running it this year, <laughs> and I'm gonna win. And I've announced. And Chris got a good laugh out of this. You know, I was kind of fucking with the boys afterwards. I was like, "Not any drug testing, is there?" <laughs> <laughs> we gotta figure out a way to get him in. That'd be dope. No, we will. No, no. he's coming. No, no, he's coming. No, I Chris or me. Me. Yeah, I'm both. That's the hard one getting back in. You you look too fit. You can't keep him out. I've actually run that marathon twice. Thanks. See you guys. See you later. So the yeah the marathon is what it's 110 laps around the yard. 105 laps. 105. And they have the line, and I'm, this is for the, um, this is for the listener or the viewer. Our video is a little wonky today, but they've got this line, these two lines rather, painted around the yard, and you have to stay. And by the way, it's not a track; it's like less than a sidewalk. You have to stay within the green lines, 105 times. That's right. Uh, Did you win? I did not win. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what uh, what do you think the record is? I don't know what the record is. The because the I heard you could beat it by an hour. No, no, I didn't say. I told I told him that I told the guy that asked me or that I was talking to about it in class that I would I, was I going to win by twenty or thirty. You said twenty initially. Yeah, I think I can win. And by then 20. you backed off and said he, ten. The the winner last year went three seventeen. Three seventeen. Yeah, and I think the record is three fifteen. Same same guy that ran it, Markel. Uh, no, but no. you have to be a, a prisoner to get the record. Like, if I go run 310, I don't get the record. I mean, if you run the San Quentin Marathon in fast, the fastest time, I think you own the record. You might have to come back every year nope. to defend your uh, title. I, but. I always joke with people, you know, they're like, you know, because I won other races besides the tour. I was like, you know, San Sebastian Classic, the Dauphine, the Colorado State Mountain Bike Championships, or Nevada City Classic. I always tell people, I'm like, you know, I did win – san sebastian once but you know now i'll just say by the way i won the san quentin marathon if if i if i can pull it off if i can pull it off i won anna in in however you know uh anytime that there's an alarm inside san quentin they make everybody sit down so i ran 84 laps and there was an alarm somewhere in the prison maybe there was a fight maybe there was a medical emergency we had to actually sit down on the yard for almost 15, 20 minutes, and imagine your legs tightening up, yeah. your back cramping up, and then when uh, they clear the alarm, then you're supposed to get up and finish the uh, marathon. So, because you're not a prisoner, prisoner, you when the alarm sounds, you got to get down. Yeah, as a safety thing. Or yeah, as, everybody. Or as, a, or as a, as just an obedience thing. No, I think it's a safety thing. Mm-hmm. You know, they want to make sure uh, that they got a handle on whatever's going on inside yeah. the prison. And the. Uh, 
all the other it's my understanding that during the marathon i love this talk this is crazy talk but during the marathon the other prisoners are out there as well in the yard you know watching the race or cheer or, or are they all inside and we're running along no no everybody's out there see i i mean let them know we got to let the boys know there's four thousand inmates at san quentin you will have a crowd. I want me. a crowd. You'll, no, you're going to have a crowd. They're not going to be cheering for me. <laughs> They'll be cheering for one of their homies. Yeah, I uh, aid stations and everything they have water. They have no. You got to bring your own water. <laughs> what? Yeah, there's a. Uh, well, they might put a a pitcher of water yeah. out, out on the uh, scoreboard, but you got to bring your own stuff. And a challenge for me was I was diabetic, yeah. right? So there was nobody uh, giving me Gatorade or, or juice boxes while I was out there. I had to take the uh, jellies out of the peanut butter and jelly lunches and st stash them on the corner. So every five, 10 miles, suck down another jelly packet and make sure my uh, blood sugar didn't go too low. That's, that's like, you know, every, every endurance geek in the world is like, I have my gels here. I've got my salt tabs. I've got my <laughs> scratch lab drink mix. And you're over here stashing the, the J out of the PBJ. I mean, that's just, Jesus Christ. <laughs> That's a, that's a whole other set of problems that nobody can relate to. Chris, let's talk about this Chris, Chris Redlitz. Yeah. All right, so with us here, Chris Redlitz, who who we talked last week. You were walking me through this. I was like, okay, this is amazing. But to see it in person is is a whole different experience, obviously. How do you – I know you visited, but how does that then lead to you and your wife, Beverly, creating this amazing organization? Well, you know, I was invited in this about almost uh, – I guess eight years ago that I was invited in to do a talk on entrepreneurship and in business. Um, <clears throat> my day job is I run a venture capital firm here in San Francisco and a friend of mine was doing some mentoring for some uh, inmates. And she asked me to come in because they had so many questions about business. They had, you know, they really wanted to talk to somebody and there was no one that they could talk to. And she said, would you just come in? Mm -hmm. And I said, no, you'd never been to prison. I'd never you been don't to look prison. Like a guy that's been to prison. No, By the way, neither you, but, yeah, that's the thing is you never know who's walking down the street, right? Yeah. You never know what their backstory is. Um, <clears throat> so I, I finally relented and went in uh, and I committed to Beverly. We were living in Marin at the time. And we, were, you know, we only lived like maybe 15 minutes from prison. And I said, I'm going to do this talk for 30 minutes and I'll be home. Mm -hmm. And I got in there and it was a packed room, about 50 guys. And I started talking and all of a sudden that 30 minutes turned into three hours. <laughs> And it was a conversation that I did not expect. These guys were prepared. They had business plans. Uh, and I could see in their eyes, like the entrepreneurs I invested in, I mean, these guys were committed. Like they wanted to create a better life after they served their time. Uh, obviously, when I got home, Beverly's pretty freaked out because it was, you know, much later than she had thought. And, but I walked in. She's like, shit, they kept him. They kept maybe him, Maybe yeah. she was like, thank God they kept him. You have to ask her later about I'll that. Ask yeah. The, the sequel uh, to this. Yeah. So I said, uh, you can't believe what I saw. It's amazing. I said, even at that moment, I said, I think we can start a technology incubator in San Quentin. This like crazy thought, right? And she said, No FM way am I going in prison. I mean, literally, like, you know, right. that was her response. And uh what it did was it really triggered something that uh you know, we, we were so ignor ignorant around and about mm -hmm. incarceration in America mm -hmm. that I had no idea about recidivism rates or cost of incarceration, no nothing. I was, you know, 
I was really sort of discounting that whole thing. I drove by San Quentin many, many times and never really thought about it. But that really triggered that human element that I experienced, that you experienced today, which maybe you didn't expect. I certainly didn't expect it. And then when I realized that the, the problem was a huge burden, you know, I'm an investor and I'm thinking, you know, with 60% recidivism, that's a bad investment for taxpayers. Like, how can we do something? So we basically, you know. I'll stop you right there. So yeah. What is the national or what's, what's the average on recidivism? And recidivism is, because when I first heard that word, I was like, okay, let me Google that word. Yeah. That's the people that get out that that come back, you know, commit crimes again and go right back. Yeah, I mean, they track it. Basically, recidivism tracks uh, within three years of, of release. Okay. So 60% generally, and it's it varies by state, but, you know, it's safe to say that 60% of people return within three years. Hmm. Um, when you spend in, in California, it's $60,000 per inmate per year. Hmm. That's a big burden. And that's just to house them. Hmm. That's not preparation or anything else. That's just a health, food, Bunk. That's yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, so we looked at that, and Beverly, you know, she came around. I said, "You have to come in prison and see what I saw." So she, she went in uh, and and talked to some of the guys and and saw what I saw. And so we said, "We're going to do something." And we, you know, we we weren't sure what the public perception or response was going to be. To we thought guys. to us, yeah. you know, like right. you're going to do this. It could have been negative. Yeah, I just made a note. I was like, there had to be people, right? The families of the victims of these guys that you want to go in and help so they can get out and get actual jobs. Like yeah. those people, there had to be a level or, or, or a factor of anger with some, I mean, I can understand what I'm saying is I can understand why you would think that. Cause I just yeah. was thinking that. Sure. Well, we went in and we said, we approached this like we would approach a startup. We said, okay, what are the metrics that we need to see if it's successful? Mm -hmm. And number one was, are any of the guys inside interested in what we're doing? Are they going to participate? Number two was, um, are we going to have any support from the outside? You know, mm -hmm. people want to come in and help us. And ultimately, will people hire these guys when they get out? So that was important for us to understand all those. We didn't know number three right away, but it was clear when we started, because it was Beverly and I and, and a few selected volunteers, we basically went in every week for 40 straight weeks mm -hmm. at night and sort of made up the program. And it was an entrepreneurship program. Um, we had the guys come up with a passion project. They built a business plan, and then we ended the six-month program with a demo day where they pitched to a live audience. What year is this again? Uh, we started in 10. The first demo day was in 2012. Mm -hmm. And Kenyatta, who was just here, was in our first uh, class. Yep. And uh, you know he was serving a life sentence. And when we put together the initial class, it was only five guys. And I didn't know anybody in prison, obviously. So I went to the prison administration and I said, well, you know, who should I recruit? Mm -hmm. And Kenyatta's name kept coming up. So I said, I have to meet this guy. And uh, he was serving a life sentence. There was no hope in that point uh, that he was going to get out. And I met him and he was one of the most enthusiastic positive people you'd ever meet. Oh, his energy is amazing. Yeah. But that was like, it was like when that was the way it was when he was serving a life sentence. I'm like, shit, I could build a program around this guy. Right. So that's really how it started. And it's progressed from there. Yeah. You know, when I was driving back into the city here to do this show, I spoke, I talked to Anna, my fiance, and she's, I told her we walked the yard and death row. And she said, were they all just sitting there depressed? Yeah, that's what she said. Yeah. And I mean, I guess that's 
you all agree that's a logical question, but having just been there, I was like, I mean, I, I don't know if they're depressed or not, but they were doing pull-ups and playing basketball. And, and you know, the scene when we first walked into the, the courtyard uh, of Death Row, these two guys, Chris, you, Chris hasn't even been in there. These two guys, when we first walked in, I was like, oh, they're walking from one end of the courtyard to the other, which, by the way, that's about 12 steps. Yep. And we stood there for 20 minutes, and they never stopped. Yep. And, and I said, hey, what are they doing? They do it for hours. Yep. They walk side by side, having a conversation, back and forth, back and forth. Yep. And they never stop. Yep. And, I, I mean, that's, you know. So my point is that there's activity. There's basketball games. There's dominoes. There's, uh, you know, there's guys just, you know, don't push whatever. Yeah. It's just, but it didn't, none of that. Uh, it might be depressing for us to see, but it, nobody there, I was like, oh, my God, this dude's super bummed out. Like, he's depressed. Like, it was, in a lot of ways, they're just like, this is it. This is life. We're going to get on with it. Right. That's true. And, and you know, we, we wanted to build on that. So yeah. we said, you know, if there is energy and hope and desire and all those things, like, how do you build on that? So we really took that first class. They just nailed it. Mm -hmm. Their demo day, each guy just was extraordinary. Chris was at the demo day and he saw it and he was inspired to join the class after that. But um, that inspired us. And we started bringing people in uh, from the business community to start meeting these guys. And, and they started seeing what we saw. And all of a sudden it, it started to get a life because it's one thing for me to talk about it, mm -hmm. uh, but it's another for someone experience. So your experience now today changed our conversation last week, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, now you have a whole different point of view. As an advocate. Yeah, I think so. And and um, but you need you're saying you need guys to graduate to be on this side to tell that story. Well, now we do, right? right? Now you do. Yeah. And but but for a while we didn't. So you know, I'd go into class at night. and I'm like, if you guys work really hard, you're going to have a job in Silicon Valley. And they're like, yeah, sure. you're full of yeah, shit, look right? At this guy. <laughs> and you know, and and one night um, there was I could tell that there was just some discontent, and the guys were just not in sync. And I sort of did a rant. I'm like, you guys have to believe in this process. You have to believe in the process. Believe me, this is going to work. Right. So you saw on the wall, we have that poster today, and, and it's sort of the mantra of the program, believe in the process and things will work out. Mm. And that's really what happened. Um, but we also had to mirror what happens in the, in the real world. So we, we adopted a zero tolerance program, which means that guys can't step out of line. First of all, they have to have now they have to have two years of clean record, no infractions for two years before they even apply to the program. If they have an infraction while they're in the program, they're immediately eliminated from the program. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's really rigorous. Those guys that you saw today, they're in the computer lab 40 hours a week. And they meet wow. on the weekends. And they're committed. Like, they are committed. Huh. And when they get out, they have a work ethic. Like these guys, Chris and Kenyatta, their work ethic is unparalleled. Yeah, I think that's, and, and, and I'm just going to draw a, a, a parallel situation um, in the cancer world where you now have advocates. You have Kenyatta, you have sure. Chris, you have these guys that are now out. Um, and so they can tell the story and you can build around yeah. that and raise around that in the cancer world, right? So the deadliest cancer that there is is lung cancer. Yeah. The cancer that gets the least funding is lung cancer. And the reason is nobody survives or very, very few. You don't have anybody on the streets, whereas breast cancer, for example, and, and I'm not picking a, you know, a disease here or, or a cell type, but 
there are millions of women that are breast cancer survivors, and they let everybody know, and they raise money, and they tell that story. They go to Capitol Hill. They go to the NCI. They go every, So that's where the money goes. So it's the same thing. Like If you don't have survivors, like Chris is a survivor, yep. then you can't build a story around that. And that's, you know, that's what... I guess that's what we're doing right here today. Yeah, and and I just want to say that you know that that there, I guess the one sort of pushback was you know you're giving these guys an opportunity. They obviously committed a crime and whatever level of crime that was, and they're giving this. They're, you're giving them this uh, this opportunity, and the response really is you know they're all getting out. Like ninety five percent of the guys are getting out. So right. the question is who do you want them to be? And now you see what they what they can be, and it's not only that they're doing well for themselves. They're doing well for their family. They're going back to their community. I think Kenyatta or Chris mentioned that we require that they have a social cause. So they have to go back to their community. So, you know, it's one of those things we're saving money and we're, we're reducing recidivism, but we're also impacting communities now moving forward. Mm -hmm. And you have other speakers. Like I wasn't the only person that you roped into coming in there. And, and you know, in, th in this world, right, the computer world, the coding world, I mean, like the, the, the reigning champ, was there a few months ago, Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah. I mean, that's like, how cool is that? And now one of the, you have a graduate who's now, well, I won't name his name because he's making so much jack now <laughs> that the IRS, he's making hundreds of thousands of dollars working at Facebook. Or he's uh, making good money. Uh, yeah. So I'm not going to say what he's making. Um, but the ironic thing is that it was actually 2014 that Mark came in uh, and Ali Tambura met him there. there there was a picture that's that actually mark posted on his facebook page that day that's become sort of the one of the sort of signature pictures of ollie and, and mark in prison mm -hmm. and now mark works for the chan Zuckerberg foundation so he actually works for mark today which is pretty extraordinary amazing yeah and how do you do you fund this whole thing or or do you you take donations i mean it's a 501c3 I'm, yep. I'm assuming and, and and you take donations have fundraisers or is this yeah. all you and beverly well, it was all us to begin with, of course. Um, and and we, yeah, we really did that purposely because we 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 wanted to prove that it worked, and we didn't want to go out and and you know solicit anyone or anything until we had proof points. Mm. So for the first few years, we made that commitment. Uh, today, it's really a combination of private funds and also the state. The state has really stepped up. What you came in today in San Quentin. Uh, the building you were in today used to be the old uh, print factory. And I saw that about five years ago. I got a chance to tour around in some some of the nooks and crannies in the prison. And, mm. and this old building was sitting there unused. And I asked somebody, you know, like, what is this? And they said, well, this old print factory has been dormant for eight years or so. I said, I want this building. <laughs> so uh, we, through a lot of, you know, support uh, CalPIA, which is Prison Industries, uh, CDCR, uh, Chuck Patillo, who runs Prison Industries, a uh, huge advocate for us. Um, today, we're actually uh, in the process of, of remodeling, and you walk yeah, through that right through, now. Yeah. It's 22,000 square feet. Yeah, major renovation. Yep. Uh, full power upgrade, um, new power grid, full of wire wireless. We'll have eight classrooms in there. Um, so that will be the prototype of uh, our program, really, and, and what we can do moving forward. So, you know, the, the idea is we'll have um, multiple classes in there. We have our business, the joint venture that we run out of there, which we can talk about as well. Mm -hmm. um, but that just shows that, you know, it works, but also 
the state was, I guess, reluctantly supportive of us initially. Now they're fully behind us because right. they see the results. And San Quentin isn't your only <clears throat> franchise. I mean, it's no, we're in yeah, we're in five prisons in California, two women's prisons. We're opening three more this spring in in, um, in California. And then I'm actually flying on Monday to Indiana, and we're having a, a press conference with the governor, and we're opening our first prison outside of California, in Indianapolis. Yeah, I mean, we are. Looks like it's working. Yeah, it's for sure it's working, and you know our goal is to franchise this across the country uh, under our nonprofit. Uh, we really believe within the next five years we can be in at least fifty prisons. And when we talked on the phone, I, I mean, I was just stupidly or, or, or uh, incorrectly so uh, just assumed somebody, you know, goes to the program, gets this education, comes out, gets a great job, and it's just the, the pull. Whether it's old friends or old habits or old. Just gets that pull. I was. I just worked off the assumption there had to be a couple guys that yep. get straight back. And I asked you. Yep. And you said in in the six or seven years there's been zero cases. So here you told me if if you're just a normal prisoner you get out sixty yep. percent of them turn right around and go back. That's right. And after the last mile that's zero percent. That's right. Amazing. You know I think it's part of it is, you know the key thing is having a job. So these guys have jobs, but they also create a community. Mm -hmm. The last mile community, the guys really support each other. Chris can acknowledge that for sure. That this is a tight community. These guys, a brotherhood, sisterhood that we communicate, that we cr help create, and it's also every ethnicity. Uh, when you walked in through that steel door today, literally, it's a big steel door you have to walk through to get to the classroom. Um, there's segregation and prejudice on one side of the wall in the yard. On the other side, there's not. In our classroom, every ethnicity is represented. These guys sit by side, side by side, and they learn to work with each other. Yeah. So it's really a beautiful thing to see that not only are they learning a trade, but they're learning how to operate in the in the real world and treat each other like human beings. Yeah. Chris Schumacher, let's talk. I want to talk about San Quentin. The play. Well said, Chris. <coughs> let's. I got too many Chris's here today, but. Um, uh, let's talk about the prison itself. I, I looked online. So San Quentin was opened in 1866, right? There was nothing. I, if you drive by now, it's absolutely gorgeous. You leave Marin, you're headed to the East Bay. It's absolutely beautiful. But this thing was the first thing there, probably 1866. Yep, exactly. And, and what most people, cause the name carries a certain aura, like, you know, it, it's a, you're like, Oh, San Quentin. But in reality, San Quentin and educate me here on this Chris Schumacher, like, there's different tiers of prisons. Level four is the worst of the worst. And then, you know, I, I don't know what then, but San Quentin is actually a level two. So people, in a lot of ways, for even all of its mystique, guys want to be in San Quentin. Is that right? Or, I mean, they don't want to be there, but they'd rather be there than a four. No, I, I would agree with that. Um, I spent the last 10 years of my 17-year incarceration at San Quentin, uh, and I realized that it used to have a very uh, violent, notorious reputation. In the 80s, it was actually a level four yard. So maybe the stairs that you walked down to get down to the yard, that used to be called Blood Alley, and for good reason. And, sorry, what makes it a four? Just the, just the, the security, the violence inside, the offenders, the, the, the guys that are inside, or what? It's the offenders. Um, classification score. So as a young man with a, a long term like I had uh, when I first started out, uh, I was classified level four. Uh, and they asked me uh, where, I would, what prison I would like to go to. I'm from LA, so they said, "Would you like to go someplace close to home?" I'm like, "Sure." Next thing I know, I'm on a bus 11 hours up to Susanville, California, uh, to High Desert State Prison. Uh, and if you can imagine, uh, that's level four. Uh, 
that's level yeah, four. Yeah. First time on the yard with guards on the wall with uh, mini 14s pointing down at you. Uh, orange jumpsuit, handcuffs uh, behind my back, walking through the snow. And I look up on the big white uh, walls and I see a sign that says, no warning shots will be fired. And that's how you know it's serious. Well, yeah. Yeah, we saw some guys getting, I don't know, getting registered, checked in, or their first day. You know, reception. Yeah. Reception. Yeah. I guess yeah. you can. I guess it is a reception. It's, it's called, called a reception, reception center. If you ever yeah. wanted. Yeah. But I can't even imagine like that first day. I mean, you know, you know what you did. You know what happened. So you know you're going to get in trouble. But like that first day where you're like, all right, man, this is it. Like I'm here, and I can't even imagine. And we looked at a lot of these guys, and I'm like, what is going through their head? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you learn to sink or swim uh, pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, and for me, uh, that meant putting away a lot of the past behaviors. That meant no drinking. That meant no drugs. It didn't mean I wasn't going to avoid trouble entirely because of the environment that I was in. Uh, but what it did do is uh, keep my head screwed on straight. And you also learn to keep your head on a swivel, too, mm -hmm. to see uh, any dangers that were coming around the corner. Um, but as you stay out of trouble yep. and as you continue to positive program and take advantage of anything that's available and on the level fours, there's not much offered. And actually in the state of California, I believe that San Quentin is unique in the fact of the amount of programs that it has and the amount of volunteers that come in from the outside. I think of a lot of it has to do with the fact that it is the only prison in California with a death row, but it's also right here in the Bay area. Um, and so its reputation actually brought a lot of volunteers and programs inside San Quentin. Um, I'd like to talk about the last mile for a second yeah, because sure. this program, you know, I was there for 10 years at San Quentin. Like I said, I did college, I did self-help, I did AA, I did NA. And there was a lot of programs that you could do to work on maybe the issues that I was having, whether it's anger or addiction or emotional intelligence, things like that. Uh, but the last mile was the first program that I saw that was really going to prepare me for what life was going to be like after prison. And honestly, that was my biggest fear throughout my entire incarceration is when and if the day ever comes when the parole board says it's time to go home, what's life going to be like? Right. Who's going to give me a chance? Where am I going to work? Where am I going to live? Uh, and I still remember when Chris Redledge came in and the first night of class, him and Beverly stood up there and said, if you'll put your heads down and work hard and learn everything you can in this program, there's going to be an opportunity waiting for you when you got out. And I didn't know when that day was at the time, hmm. but I believed him and I believed you in the believed process. It? Pretty convincing. Uh, and, you know, it, it even gets me emotional now just thinking about it because that was five years ago. Yep. Five years ago, and I never thought I'd be sitting here today in a podcast with Lance Armstrong <laughs> talking about being a coder in San Francisco, uh, going through a program uh, that taught me, you know, I knew nothing about coding. Computers for my first 14 years in prison were taboo. Nobody had access to computers uh, before the last mile brought him into San Quentin. Uh, so, so to learn these skills while I was inside and fall in love with it at the same time, right? I really, I mean, I was born to be a computer programmer. <laughs> but, but is there, because you're a musician too. I was a musician. Thought I wanted to be a rock and roll star. But you still know how to play the guitar. Turns out I'm more of a campfire guitarist. 
You know, I have a lot of guests on here that play the guitar, and if I'd have had my you know head on right, I'd have had a guitar here, and you could have jammed something for us. But is there? It seems like there's almost like a something to the rhythm of it, or just the, the mindset of it. Or you can tell me if I'm wrong, but music is is coding too. Like, or, or am I? I can't do either of them, so I'm making this up. But I, maybe you weren't so far from being a natural talent. You actually bring up an interesting point that I hadn't thought about because I knew that uh, while I was in college, uh, I loved math, and also wait, was which college? Uh, Patton College inside San Quentin. Okay, yeah, yeah, that college. Uh, was able to earn an AA degree. Loved uh, algebra, geometry, physics. Th those were my jam uh, <laughs> before coding. But at the same time, I've always uh, had an aptitude for languages. Uh, before prison, I was in the United States Air Force uh, in Monterey, California, learning Korean, going to be a linguist. Hmm. Uh, so these two things, math and language, combined perfectly with computer programming. Yep. And then I like the aspect of uh, bringing the music into it, maybe a fluidity or a creativity. Yeah. Well, the language component, that's a that, 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 whatever it is in the brain that can play an instrument is is also in my opinion the thing that can that can you know there are certain people they can't learn spanish or french or korean to save their lives they're just not they don't have it right and i and some people do right and obviously the younger you start the easier it is but i think there's a i think there's a correlation between certainly music and language which, but i would go out on a limb and say it has to be something there with coding i mean you, you, you look it was yeah. fate yeah, you know, and I think that's what there's a bit of a misconception that you have to be, you know, a, a college graduate, you have to go to a top school to be a good coder. It's just mm -hmm. not the case. You know, we've we found that Chris who was hired by Fandom, now where he works as a software engineer, he wasn't given the job. He had to actually go through an interview to become a software engineer. Yeah, so you don't have it set up. You Chris Redlow say I've started this amazing charity and I'm going to get these guys out. You're a successful VC guy here in San Francisco. It would be easy for you to go, okay, guys, I have this other project, and I'm going to have five guys in the next however many, you know, this year, and I need you to give them a job. So that nobody's given. Yeah. I think that's a great point. No, it's we. You got to compete. Yeah, absolutely. This is not a gift. Yeah. I mean, even when Kenyatta talked about Duncan Logan coming in and, and uh, hiring him, Duncan did it because he knew he'd be a damn good employee. Mm -hmm. He didn't do it as a gift, even though Duncan and I are friends. It's not the reason he got the job. Right. Uh, but you've got guys that start, literally guys that had never seen the internet become phenomenal software engineers. So it's, it's taking that blank canvas. They had no idea about coding, but they just, it was just natural for them. And it's mm -hmm. amazing to see. It's one of those fantastic social experiments, frankly. Yeah. That um, because you can't you can't find people out here today that haven't had some exposure to some sort of web related apps being on the internet. Right. These guys have zero, and they become great coders. It's yeah. phenomenal. So Chris Schumacher, so you and we've touched on this, and you guys warned me about this before we went in. It wasn't so much as a warning; it was just like a heads up. Like prison life is very segregated. It is not, you know, when you get through that steel door and you're yep. in the classroom at the last mile. That I spoke to that room today. That is the most diverse place. That I've seen in a long time, yeah. whether it's uh, Hispanics, Asians, yeah. African Americans, uh, you know, white dudes. I mean, it was. But but the yard is very segregated. And my question is: is that is that just sort of the blacks stick to the blacks, and the whites stick to the whites, and the Hispanics, or or is is that sort of, or does do, does the prison actually encourage that, force that, or, or is that just guys just hanging with their own type? 
Yeah, that's uh, the guys inside California. I mean, the the prison does uh, back it up in the fact that when you first arrive, you only sell up with people of your own race. Yep. Uh, so I would say they have a part in it there. Um, but a lot of it's uh, the guys on the yard choose who they want to hang out with. And a lot of that mentality filters down from the level fours. So when I first got there, they said, don't walk the yard with anybody of another race. Don't play chess with anybody of another race. Uh and being so young and really not knowing the lay of land, you know, when in Rome, you do as the Romans do. Uh, and that was incredibly difficult for me. Mm. Uh, so as the levels or your points came down and you, you went down in levels, some of those in-house politics lightened up a little bit. Uh, so at San Quentin, uh, guys were able to play sports. You know, the run team was uh, integrated. The tennis team was integrated. Um, and then the last mile program, the coding class. Super integrated. Integrated and it's so important because I mean that's the way the world works, right? Everybody doesn't just sit in their own box out here in the real world, uh, and so it taught us, you know, a lot of how to uh, get along uh, with other people, and it also taught me a lot about the type of person that I want to be. Right. When you say you went in, you you figured out real quick, real quick that uh, you either that you needed to figure out how to sink or, or you were going to decide sink or swim, and it, does that mean? staying in your lane and just staying out of harm's way or just staying out of conflict or does that because you have to there always is there has to be conflict in prison i don't care how much you want to stay in your lane somebody interrupts that walk sure i mean uh it's very easy to to fall into a group and and everybody's grouped up by race uh in prison and i still remember that the first day on the yard uh at high desert prison when uh, we were released out to the yard and all the different groups go to their certain area and, and they greet each other. Uh, and I remember them saying, uh, doing a church call, meaning any of the guys that wanted to go to church could uh, go line up at this door. And so after greeting all the fellows, I started heading across the yard. And I remember looking back and I saw that I was the only person walking across the yard. To church. Yeah, to church. And there wasn't like a more lonely or scary feeling like at that point because i was kind of essentially separating myself uh from the pack um but i look back at that decision now the fact that i was willing to stand on my own two feet and do what i knew in my heart was right you know i made it a a spiritual decision uh to become somebody different Hmm. uh and for every time that i was able to do that i felt like god had my back yeah yeah, well, we, we, when we were walking through death row, there were a lot of dudes playing basketball and pull-ups and dominoes and everything outside, and we walked by the, the church, or the, the death, death yep. row chapel, yep. which is not, there's not a, a chaplain there, a preacher there, it's on video. That's right. There, there were not many guys in there. No, it was three. There, I, I, I counted two, but you're smarter okay. than me. But it was, <laughs> there was a lot of space. Yeah, there was the, a lot of space. It was, it was, uh, yeah. And somebody else told me that, that, that whatever temptation, let's just call it temptation, drugs, alcohol, whatever, whatever you want to get on the outside, you can get on the inside. True. That, is that really true? That's very true. So if it's cocaine, oxys, marijuana, alcohol. Yes, yes, right. yes. I wouldn't be your guy to get those things. I understand. <laughs> However. And if you are, this would be a really bad time to say that you are. <laughs> Thanks for that legal, yeah. legal advice. Lance. Yeah, we'll edit that out in case you are the guy. No, but, so uh, that's just—I mean, I guess I mean, 
you know, what, I'm, I think that's going to be easier in the future as drones become nicer and nicer and quieter and quieter. But how does that get in a prison? That has to come from a guard or a kitchen worker or yes, a variety of visitors. Or, yeah, I mean, it, it's there are a lot of different avenues where things come inside. Uh, you know, contraband. A lot of people have cell phones inside. That's big contraband because that's not. You know, not something that, huh. that the prison wants to allow for outside communication that's not supervised. You know, the other thing that struck me, and you guys, Chris, you've been there enough as a visitor, you've been there enough as a resident, um, is how guys can customize their space, their cell, right? Mm-hmm. If you watch the movies, right, you're walking down the line, there's metal bars, and there's a, a metal bed with a mattress and sheets, and that's it, and a metal mm-hmm. toilet. like. Mm-hmm. But every cell, it's like it... it this is probably a bad analogy, but it's like kids go off to college, they're dorm, like they customize them, they have posters and blah blah blah. Every cell was customized, and these guys have you know bookshelves and they have uh, you know coverings over. The, I mean, it, it was all it was remarkable. I mean, I'm not, I was just shocked by that. But you went inside though. You, you walked in one of the cells. And you I saw walked, how small I, they are. Yeah, and I, I walked in one of the cells that wasn't being used at the time. So right. it had the mattress, but it wasn't in one of the. I kind of. I really wanted to go in one of these. I, I think I wanted to go. I think I wanted to go in one of the ones that had been totally tricked out by these guys while he's out in the yard. But yeah. um, no, there's not. You got to be creative with your how you utilize space. I mean, yeah. it was you can barely get past the bunks. So on in the re- the regular population, this is important to know. There's two guys per uh, cell. Mm-hmm. Death row. There's the only upgrade about death row is you get your own cell. Yeah. But you're on death row. Yeah. Um, but it, you can barely get past these bunks, and then as soon as you get past them, you hit the toilet. Like, yeah, they're, they're four by nine. Yeah. There's a bunk bed, and uh, two guys live there. And and remember that when there's a lockdown, they're in that cell 23 hours a day. So you can't, you know, you got to be. Have a good relationship with your uh, with your celly, right? And, yeah. and, and and I asked I asked today yeah. if if you get to if you get to pick your roommate, and and the answer came back from the kid who was photographing us, who worked for the San Quentin News. Um, thank you guys for giving me a baseball cap. Um, said that when you first get there, you don't get to pick, but over time, if you behave right, et cetera, you you can kind of pick your your buddy or your yeah. who you're most comfortable being with. Yeah, one of the amazing thing is uh, Darnell Hill, who is also a graduate from the last mile. He served 24 years. He was his dad's cellmate in San Quentin in 1991. Wow. Pretty crazy, right? They were convicted together of robbery, and his dad basically recruited his son to do robberies with him. They were they actually spent time in San Quentin together. It's pretty amazing. Amazing. And you had your guitar. I did have my guitar uh, in the cell, uh, up on the towel rack, in between the locker, wedged just so... Uh, <laughs> Didn't play it a whole lot. Uh, Frankly, I never s- heard him play, so I'm not sure if he's if he's telling the truth or not. There, we, right? we can just keep building the story up. <laughs> yeah, next thing you know, he's who's who's with the you know. Maybe uh, he was the real Johnny Cash. I'm not sure. Yeah, uh, who needs a guitarist? Uh, I don't know. Allison Chains is going back out on the road. Maybe you could go out with them or something. Yeah, for, I mean, for me, it was just just a you don't you don't need to be out on the road as a rock star. No, no, I'm, I got a 50 mile radius now. We got parole issues to deal with. <laughs> you got you got. Yeah, you're like, yeah, life. Uh, you know, you talked about uh, bars or restaurants. You yeah. know, uh, bars are out of the equation for me. You don't uh, go to. Can't go to any place where alcohol, serving alcohol is a primary function. You uh, cannot or you, you I choose cannot, not that, to? No, I cannot. And I choose not to. 
So as uh, part of the parole, you cannot visit an establishment that serves alcohol. Where serving alcohol is the primary also function, a, bar, a liquor right. store, a bar, something like right. that. And how long does that last? Uh, at least five years. Yep. At least five years. Uh, and that means travel restrictions. You know, I can't go outside a 50-mile radius uh, without permission from my parole agent. Mm-hmm. Um, but this past uh, Christmas, uh, they did grant me five days to go down to L.A. and visit my mom. Hmm. Uh, your mom was there. Your mom. I heard your mom and your sister were there the day you walked out. It was incredible. Yeah. I mean, when you walked out or when you went to LA? Uh, both, both. However, but let, let's just, I mean, back up a little bit. Uh, imagine serving 17 years when my mom and my sister were my biggest supporters throughout the whole thing. Um, you know, they spent so many Christmases and holidays inside the visiting rooms of, of San Quentin. And so for me to finally be granted release, and to get out on that day and have them there waiting for me, I felt like they got out of prison. Yeah, for sure. Right, because they lived it with me. Mm. Uh, and not to mention, Chris Redlitz and Beverly Perini were there too. Yeah, you know they talk about this as a program, but it's also a family. Right. It's a fraternity. Uh, the the twenty or thirty guys that have gotten out so far, I'm in contact with all of them. Um, and we support each other out here too. So that means if there's challenges, if there's problems, if uh, Eddie Griffin has a mild heart attack, uh, Chris was on the horn saying, you know, call him, support your brother. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's important. Um, so this is program is is giving guys job skills. But it's it's like a fraternity. Yeah. Yeah. How to be a, as men and mm-hmm. human beings. You got a love interest, a lady, a uh... I think you already blasted that out there a little bit, but uh, you know, when I when I got out, I can't go to a bar, right? So yeah. there's, there's no uh, there's no single bars in, in my future, uh, but there are dating apps. Yeah, uh, and so I was chatting around on on the dating app, <laughs> uh, and uh, saw a nice girl, and uh, I texted, "Hey, uh, you're in Concord. I'm in Concord. Uh, why don't you show me around?" And uh, she said, "Oh, you're new in town. Where'd you come from?" <laughs> So here's the moment of truth, right? What do you say? Uh, and so I texted in uh, San Quentin. And she said, you were in prison? And uh, I could do nothing but say yes. you know. And I think it's really important to be transparent uh, with people and be honest with people. Uh, and there was no turning back at that point. And so over the course of two or three weeks, I mean, it took me two or three weeks of a lot of texting, a lot of oh, I, I, uh, I, I, explaining. I don't know why. Uh, she gave me a chance. Uh, she ran, I'm a runner, uh, she rides bikes, I ride bikes. Uh, so our first date was actually a bike riding date down to the park. <laughs> uh, we chatted, we got to know each other, uh, ate some ice cream and tacos, and we've been dating ever since. That's amazing. Wow. I mean, that's just, yeah, yeah. I mean, it would be very easy for her to just be like, <laughs> block. Yeah, exactly. You know? I mean, that takes, but also for you to, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, at this point in your life, you just have to say, yeah, I was. Yeah, just right, right, right around the corner up here. Yeah, well, good luck to you all. That's Who's stronger on the bike? <laughs> Please say her. Please say her. It's got to be her, right? You lost a lot of fitness in there. You were away for 17 years. You couldn't ride. I mean, I, I get it. You know, actually, fitness has been my, my recovery. No, I bro, uh, you look plenty fit. Yeah, you, I mean, you're freaking me out a little. <laughs> all leaned out. And he is leaned out. He is leaned out. Yeah. I invited you on that run tonight. It's too bad you had that plane to catch. I gotta go. Well, you know, these five kids, they don't, you know, 
running with Chris Schumacher, it's not they're gonna be like who? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're going to be like who until they listen to this podcast because yeah, yeah, it's so yeah. powerful. But no, I, I'm in this city a lot, and and we'll be running whenever you want to run. We got to train for that uh, San Quentin Marathon. And right? I train every day. I'll be ready. All right, I'll, about the, I'll I'll be ready. I just don't want anybody cutting corners. You, you know what I'm saying? Trust me, they don't cut corners. <laughs> anybody cuts corners, they're going to trip them on the basketball yeah, court. Yeah. So look out. Yeah, yeah. Chris Schumacher, thank you. Chris Redless, thank you. Thank you for taking me in and. You know, in life, you have these moments where you're just like, okay, that, you know, that just changed my life forever. And and today was one of those days. Like, and the other thing I want to point out to you, and I, and I said it to the class, and I, I don't know if it means anything to them or means anything to anybody listening, but everybody I told I was going to San Quentin were like, are you scared? Are you worried? Yeah. And I said, no. I mean, I, I just assumed that we were part of a, uh, an entourage that was safe and when i was but that doesn't matter because once you get there then the rubber hits the road yeah i never felt threatened i never felt unsafe yeah. all the guys are like what's up lance what's up what's up i mean there was so much of to the point where Lindsay was like is this is it always like this and i'm like i mean there was this connection i mean i guess i am in some ways kind of a thug but um i never ever even in in and in, in we were deep into death row like i never I never felt unsafe. And yes, there's guards everywhere. And yes, but yeah. even even for somebody spitting on you or yelling at, like it, it was, I never felt like I was scared. I guess is the word. Well, it's funny. Um, we did a talk at Stanford a few years ago, and we were with one of our graduates, Horatio Hartz. And someone asked me when we do Q and A, and someone in the audience asked me, and they said, "You know, are you scared?" Or blah blah blah. And I and I started to answer, and Ray said, "Chris, let me answer that for you." He said, you have to understand that people like Chris and Beverly and those that give us a chance, we have their back. Mm -hmm. Like there are guys in the yard looking out for you, Lance, because you're part of this thing, right? Mm -hmm. You may not know they're watching out for you, but they are. Mm -hmm. And that's important. It's like we become so ingrained in this and there's, it's so important that the community that is prison community really respects that so you know you can never really drop your guard completely because you're in prison but you have to know that there is a real genuine support you know uh so that's that's super important yeah and i also want to say that you know um when Lindsay first approached me about you know doing this i really didn't have any frame of reference of where you were in this world mm -hmm. right you know i like everyone else followed you and saw your mm -hmm. sort of post-release discussion and then sort of lost touch. She's like, and I'm like, what's his motivation? What's he want to do? And uh, she said, well, you need to listen to some of his podcasts. Mm -hmm. And I did. I told you on the phone the other day, and, and it seemed to me that there was this point in time, and we talked about that today in prison, about the, the, the sort of the switch hit and you realize this importance of transparency like we talked about with these guys. And it's so resonated today with this community. I mean, you saw it with the guys. Yeah. It so resonated with them that I really do appreciate you coming in. And uh, I'm all the way there with you. Thank you, brother. Yeah. I have one last question for Chris Schumacher. Because yep. somebody asked me this question the other day, and I said, you know what? I'm going to steal that question. Uh, I asked Kenyatta earlier, but what keeps you up at night? That was uh... – I was thinking about that question. Uh, you know, I'm still living in a, a transitional house in Concord. Uh, and today, uh, a man named Robin is getting released from San Quentin after serving 44 years. 
Uh, and that's going to be my new roommate. Hmm. Uh, so what kept me up was uh, cleaning up the room and getting <laughs> Literally ready for him. But no other stress, no other, uh, nothing in your head that. You know, if you asked me that question a year ago, you asked what, what keeps you up at night. It's like, what's life going to be like after I get out of prison? Right. Um, it, was, it was my biggest fear. It weighed over me uh, because I didn't know. And getting out and being able to work an internship with the last mile, we were building a learning management system that's basically packaging the coding program at San Quentin, putting it into a piece of software, and then we're going to distribute it to other prisons throughout California. I mean, that was an amazing gift, right? Because not only did I get the skills while I was inside, now I'm creating something that's going to help other men to code. Yeah. Um, you know, and here's the other thing that, like, why I'm so out there today about, about my crime and taking ownership and being transparent is because I want people to know that the men inside prison aren't what the media makes them out to be. Just like you aren't right. everything that the media makes it out to be. It's sometimes true. we're more, sometimes we're less, right. but... There are a lot of men working their ass off in San Quentin to try to make amends for those crimes they committed. And those are the ones, I believe, that deserve a second chance. Yeah. There's nothing else to say. Thanks, fellas. All right. Thanks a lot. Amazing. Appreciate it. Thanks for today. Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Forward Podcast. Like I said at the top of the show, any suggestions or questions, send me an email. It's a new one. The forward at we do.team and we do is spelled W-E-D-U. The forward at we do.team. Thanks for tuning in each and every week. Look forward to talking to you next week.